Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 149th video cast and 139th podcast for the week ending August 25th, 2022. Coming to you live from North Carolina on vacation at the beach. Uh, please excuse the tie and shirt. I just got off Fox Business. Uh, this afternoon. I want to share a few quick photos with you and then we'll get right down to it. Uh, thanks to American Airlines who kindly let my daughters uh, sit in the uh, in the pilot seat uh, on the way down to uh, Wilmington and then we had to drive up about 45 minutes from there but uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, this is on the beach. We do our morning walks and I guess that was Sunrise, the two girls. That's, uh, you know, I don't know what's wrong with Caitlin's phone. We're going to have to maybe switch to Android because I'm just not seeing the six pack that I know I have there. It almost looks like I have a dad bod, but uh, nonetheless, that's Mimi, my 10 year old. Uh, this is the view this morning. And this was last night, a ghost crab hunt. They take the kids out and they have all these crabs running all over the beach and they catch them. And uh, Mimi and Annabelle were, uh, were, were very quick and, and caught quite a few of them, which was awesome. And this is from, uh, I think, maybe lunch one day. Uh, but, uh, that's that. So we're having a great time. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's been a great month, uh, between Montana and now, now here and then, uh, back, back home and back to work. So, uh, first off, want to do a little media, want to thank Ellie Terrett, Lauren Simonetti and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown today with my buddy Phil Flynn. Uh, this one was a lot of fun. Uh, you can check it out talking about, uh, the Fed, what, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's happening with positioning in the market, and what happened today. The most hated group in the world, Chinese stocks, was the best performer. We'll get into that. Some good news, finally. Uh, also want to thank Shauna Smith for having me in studio, Taylor Clothier, the producer, Jeff Cohen, and uh, also Dave Briggs last Friday, I uh, got to go in and do some stuff in studio. This was a great one. You also want to check that out as well. And then Phil Yin over at CGTN talking about real estate and the housing market. Uh, thanks to Ryan Gallagher as well on that. Always a fun time talking with Phil. I want to switch over to print. Uh, Lydia Moynihan over at the New York Post, my favorite newspaper in the entire world. want to thank Lydia for including me in her article. I was quoted alongside uh, Lloyd Blankfein, former CEO of Goldman Sachs. And I said, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of gloominess. I said, uh, you know, JB, Jamie Dimon has historically been very cautious on the market. Uh, you know, he lived through the financial crisis of 2008. I said, we've already had a technical recession with two quarters of negative GDP growth. The last time people had been this negative was March 2009 and April 2020, when the market had already bottomed and the downturn was in the rearview mirror. And I think we're going through a similar situation. I covered that on Fox Today uh, and on Yahoo, that the uh, amount of cash that institutions are holding are uh, higher than March 2009 lows and, and pandemic uh, April uh, 2020, which was uh, a few weeks after the bottom in the pandemic. Uh, it's a rear view mirror uh, behavior and, uh, and that creates opportunity for, for people listening to this podcast video cast. I want to thank Anisha Sirkar and Meta Singh for including me in their uh, article on AMC. Uh, they did this uh, two-for-one dilutive security. It's it's kind of a sham because they have 
500 million additional shares outstanding that they can issue and dilute the hell out of shareholders. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I said the issue is that the Ape security dividend is a dilutive security that should be viewed like a two for one split. AMC is pretending to give existing shareholders something of value, but, but in reality, they're just paving the road for future dilution. And look, they have to do it by survival, but it's a little disingenuous and uh, kind of sad because the target uh, is pe- are people who uh, maybe don't fully understand what's going on and a and, uh, little, little uh, disappointing to see. Uh, quote of the day from Ben Graham, successful investing is about managing risk, not in avoiding it. And uh, that's why we always talk about how we're sized in, in certain very large positions. And this year, you know, we've gone into th- well two in terms of capital uh, put out and then three in terms of what it's become because of appreciation on CPS. Uh, but these are big size positions. They're very high conviction positions. But even if you have the highest conviction in the world, you never go 80% into a position or uh, 50% into a position, etc. You can run a concentrated book, and and by definition, you have to run a concentrated book uh, with you know five to ten securities making up 90% of the results or 80% of the results um, uh, to, in order to outperform. There's actually no other way to do it, uh, but. Uh, you do have to manage that risk, no matter how high your conviction is. You know uh, there are variables outside of your control, so you max out at certain levels. Where what we've always taught is, you have to think: if this went to zero, would they take me out on a stretcher? And that's our question number one in every investment that we go into. And uh, and one hundred percent of the time, the answer is no, because we have non-correlated, concentrated bets side by side. Uh, so that if one black swans on us, uh, we live another day and the others make up the slack and then you move on. Uh, but in our case, I think we're going to be very, very pleasantly surprised and, and see all of them uh, really start to hum. Two out of three uh, are starting to work aggressively in biotech and uh, C, uh, Cooper Standard. And now BABA, we got some really great news today. Uh, So we're going to cover that. Um, And uh, Chinese stocks were the number one performers today, up between 7 and 9%. Uh, And uh, and the reason being is uh, Wall Street Journal exclusive, and they tend to be very reliable with these exclusives in that uh, U.S. and China near a deal to allow audit inspection of New York-listed Chinese companies. So basically what's happening is that um, they are going to... Uh, they're going to allow, they're going to move the audit working papers from mainland China to Hong Kong and allow the PCAOB regulators from the U.S. to travel to Hong Kong to inspect the working papers, which basically means that all of the uh, non-SOE, non-state-owned enterprise companies will be able to remain listed on the New York Stock Exchange if this information is correct and they follow through with this deal uh, it could be very, very exciting. So um, you're just seeing the whole group group up dramatically outperforming the rest of the market. And I think as we get more color on this, we're going to see more of a panic bid into those. Uh, and that's uh, that's great because uh, not only we've we been patient, but we've been consistently using the uh, weakness 
uh, uh, over the months to add and brought our basis down. Once we're over 105, our, our blended basis should be in the ballpark of 113.50, which means that if this is right, you see, you're going to see the stock at 150.160 very, very quickly, and we're going to make a ton of, ton of money. Uh, so we're excited about that. Uh, cautiously optimistic, as, as the economists like to say. Beijing re- reaffirms message of support for big tech as Alibaba's Taobao maker. Uh, festival showcases merchants betting on new consumer trends. So what I'm, I'm going to go through like 20 headlines, and they've all come in like literally the last 24 to 48 hours. And the theme I want you guys to take away is that the Chinese government is absolutely uh, panicking. Okay. So they are now, they now realize they pushed the thing over the edge and they are panicking to get the ship back in order. And they're throwing all the stimulus, all the easing, all the policy, they're just reversing everything and then throwing the kitchen sink after it to solve the problem. Why? Because their existence is at stake. And I said, this was coming. And I said, I've never seen someone inflict so much self-harm, but they did not recognize it until now they've got the lagged effect of, of, uh, of, uh, not thoughtful actions that they took 12 months ago. And they are panicking with stimulus and, and everything else, which is going to create such a monumental boom in, the, in these equities and in these businesses. Uh, it's going to blow your mind. I mean, uh, so what we had anticipated is now coming to pass and it's coming to pass quickly. Um, the only final piece of the puzzle is COVID zero. I don't think they'll ever formally declare COVID zero is over, but I do think their actions are going to be a lot more lenient as, a, as it relates to that because I think they finally recognize that they're toast. Uh, they got 20% youth unemployment. Uh, you get a bunch of educated young people pissed off. That's the last thing you want as a communist power because those are the type of people that wind, wind up getting you overthrown when they riot. They've got a lot of energy. They've got a lot of intelligence and they got a lot of numbers. And that's the last thing you want as a communist government because you're, you, you can get overthrown very, very quickly. Uh, history's shown that many times. So they are going to throw as much stimulus as quickly to turn this thing around as fast as possible. And in order to create the jobs, hello, who were the biggest uh, uh, job providers for these newly educated engineers? Uh, hello, it was Alibaba, it was Tencent, it was JD, it was Pinduoduo. They're not hiring now. Joke's on the government, you figure out where to employ them. And, uh, and they're gonna have to give so much support to these platforms in order to get these kids employed that it's gonna be absolutely mind-boggling. Uh, you know, like, like all politicians, Chinese, United States, they always come to the perfect conclusion after they've exhausted all other possibilities. And in part, it's, it's frequently because most of the people running government have never run a business in their entire lives and they don't ha- know how to make the correct decisions and they don't know how to see six to 12 to 24 months out the consequences of short-term emotional decisions. But that's the bad news. The good news is uh, sooner or later they figure it out and then they panic back into it. And we've positioned while they were screwing up and will benefit while they're fixing it. And, uh, and, and that's the way it goes. All's well that ends well. China adds 1 trillion yuan more of stimulus to rescue growth. That's from this morning. Uh, in addition to the deal with the PCAOB, it's just like boom, 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 boom. Uh, you know, uh, a- Alibaba, JD, other Asian stocks jump. This time, 
thank China's government. <laughs> Who would ever thank China's government for anything after the last year? Well, uh, Jack Denton, who, who writes uh, uh, really good stuff on BABA and balanced articles, for the most part, uh, he's, been, he's been fair, both on the good and the bad. Uh, he talks about the 19-point policy package from China's state council, uh, which is um, another 100, $117 billion on top of everything. And this is just starting, not to mention all the stimulus that's been jammed in since November, that uh, with the country remaining opening open since that big shutdown in uh, uh, March, April, May, and part of June, uh, it's starting to trickle in and we're seeing it in web traffic, et cetera, we covered last week. China lifts infrastructure spending to bolster growth after lockdowns. It's more stimulus. Uh, exclusive China regulator warns banks against yuan selling. They're trying to prop up the uh, Chinese yuan. Chinese developers lean on government bond guarantees, so they're backstopping the bonds. Like everything under the sun, and uh, it's it's literally mind-boggling. China rolls out aid to help power firms and save rice harvest. It's just like they realize they screwed up, and they're just trying to fix everything overnight, and they will. And they're going to overshoot, just as they overshot on the crackdown and the tightness and the dumb policies, they're going to overshoot on the stimulus and the help and the boosting, uh, boosting because they're not going to see it right away. So they're going to keep pushing in and pushing in and pushing in as they've done since November. And then these things are going to just double and triple and quadruple. And it's going to be an absolute mania and very exciting to have been in when no one wanted to touch them and everyone was selling in the hole. So uh, China reopens to foreign students after more than two years. I mean, two years they've been shut living in the Stone Age. So, you know, eventually they get it after they've exhausted all other possibilities. China trims lending rates again one week after surprise cuts in key rates. So two cuts in two weeks. Talk about panic and fear among those, the powers that be in China. They know they're on their last legs and they're going to get overthrown if they don't fix this fast. We anticipated that eight months ago. It took them a little longer to figure it out, but they finally have. So they'll probably self-preserve and the economy will benefit for it. China developers rally as Beijing alleviates liquidity fears. Stock and junk bonds rise after LPR cut loan support pledge. Uh, Invesco says more non-traditional stimulus measures are needed. They're coming, trust me. Uh, you have no idea how quickly they act when they're panicked about losing their power. China needs to address slowing growth more aggressively, fund manager says. Sounds like the government heard her call. PBOC calls on lenders to stabilize credit growth, i.e. lend more, extend credit. We got to grow this sucker. We, we've gone too far. China plans $29 billion in special loans to troubled developers. Anyone else need money? We'll do it. We'll give it to whoever needs it. China's yuan falls after central bank cuts rates for the second time in as many weeks. China college grads can't find jobs. It's exhausting and I'm ready to give up. You don't want exhausted, educated young people in millions uh, in, in your capital because then you're toast. So they're going to have to figure this out quickly. And the number one way to get these kids employed is to give Alibaba, JD, Tencent, tons and tons and tons of subsidies, supports, stimulus, uh, uh, consumption incentives, etc., which they've already been talking about and reiterating. Uh, China launches 200 billion yuan bailout of housing. PBOC has scoped to cut rates by up to 50 basis points more, ex-advisor says. Um, uh, now, uh, institutional investor emerging markets have now become the safer bet. We agree. 
and then moving on to the rest of the world. So wow, we got that through that a lot faster than I expected. Hedge funds build the biggest bet against Italian debt since 2008. I covered this on Fox Business today. And the reason that's important is because it shows that quantitative easing is, is like the Hotel California. You can check in, but you can never leave. And uh, we found that out in Europe. So hedge funds are um, uh, as short against uh, Italian debt as they were in 2008 which has forced the ECB to move from quantitative tightening back to quantitative easing. They're calling it something else. You know, they're calling the blue sky green, but it's still the same blue sky. And, uh, and they now have a bond buying facility for periphery bonds, i.e. they're back into quantitative easing, which is why I think you're going to see the Fed continue to lag behind on the quantitative tightening schedule in the U.S. They know that when you go too fast, you break things. They figured that out in 2018. They learned their lesson. And I think you're going to see a lot of talk about data dependence moving forward, which is code for we're going to talk a big game, but we're not going to do more than we have to because we don't want to tighten too aggressively and break things. So uh, and the market's now sniffing that out. So, as a matter of fact, it's such a funny exchange with Lauren and Phil. You have to watch that Fox business thing. I said, <laughs> I said uh Oh, anyway, you just watch it and you'll see for yourself. It was funny. Uh, Stocks are set up to rally again as inflation drops and recession risks abate. Luthold's group, Jim Paulson. Jim is uh, one of the best uh, strategists in the business. You can read this on Business Insider. You can see it here. Uh, Followed by uh, uh, Marco Kalanovic at JP Morgan. He's one of the best. And we're going to he's going to be the center point of our article on the week because not only is he bullish on the overall market, but part of his thesis is that China stimulus is going to help uh, recover the entire world because they're in panic mode with massive stimulus. And now that the country's open for the last two months, uh, we're going to start to see the result of that in this quarter. And that's going to help the rest of the world demand. Uh, moving right along, a, re- a renewed Iran nuclear deal appears closer than ever. Here are the fin- final sticking points. So maybe that they get that done. I, I mean, I don't even, I, you know, anyway, I'll, no comment. Uh, Biden's student loan forgiveness plan to cancel up to $20,000 in debt for millions. Uh, yeah, this is not about canceling $20,000 for anyone. This is about taking $300 billion from taxpayers who didn't go to college or did go to college and actually paid off their debts and giving it to those people uh, who are of voting age right before November 8th in order to buy their vote. It's nothing more. It's crystal clear. Otherwise, they would just say, if you paid off your debt already, we're going to give you $10,000 too and buy your vote as well. But it is what it is. But here's the net effect, guys. Uh, and gals, basically what you have between the Inflation Reduction Act, which is $600 billion buy now, pay pay later uh, spending bill, uh, repackaged as as a hoax that it's an Inflation Reduction Act. So you got basically $600 billion of spending there and another $300 billion of taxpayer money going to pay off $10,000 of uh, student loan debt per person, two per household, uh, so you, you're looking basically at for, for uh, an uh, administration that's so intent on fighting inflation, they just spent $1 trillion of which at least half of that will not be returned uh, until 2026 and beyond. So it's spend now, 
potentially pay back half later. It's inflationary, it's stimulatory. And like I said, there's no intention of bringing down inflation. We're at 125% debt to GDP. The intent is to run inflation above trend three to 5% for the next three to five years like they did post-World War II, run nominal GDP hot as hell, and uh, and they brought in inflation down from 125% down to 63% in five years by inflating it away. And you're going to see the exact same thing now. Who loses? Uh, you know, it's a regressive tax uh, on everyday people who have to buy stuff like food and gas and energy and electric bills and that type of stuff. And that's the path that we're on. And that's the, that's the path that the administration has chosen. So it, good, bad or indifferent, it doesn't matter what you think. Uh, you know, some people like instant gratification, uh, but just know, uh, you know, uh, how to play the game, given how it's set up. We don't really care right, bad, right, wrong, good, bad, just how do we position our investments so we can make the most money uh, from the hand that we're dealt and, and that's what we've been doing. Uh, but that's, exact, that's what it actually is and that's why we're playing in the way that we're playing. Uh, for all, and that's why we've been bullish when everyone else was uh, under their bunker in June uh, with hedge funds selling uh, at their highest rate since the 2008 great financial crisis. And we were telling people, if we're not buying it in, in, at this level of extreme pessimism and positioning, then we, we need to be in another business. And sure enough, we were in the hole buying from everyone else selling in the hole. We've had this rally, we'll consolidate it before and then we'll move higher as we talked about with Lauren uh, and Phil on Fox today. Uh, okay, article of the week, three investing themes for the next three years. By the way, for those of you asking about my golf game, no one got me on Eagle Point, by the way, uh, which I'm very sad about. There's still one more day tomorrow for any of you North Carolinians. Uh, but a nice uh, cardiologist reached out, and uh, he's at a local club, and uh, but he, he didn't have any friends at Eagle Point. Uh, I've been able to play four or five, four or five nines. Uh, I had two of my best ever uh, in history. Uh, as you, many of you have been following me, uh, I've not played in 20 years. I wasn't very good back then. And then I started up, you know, three, four months ago. Uh, and I've just been refining things. And um, uh, one, my friend Rob got my 60-degree wedge working last week. Number two, I got my driver under control. And number three, I've got my swing thought down to one thought, which is flying wedge which uh, might not mean anything even for some of the good golfers, but it's basically, um, you know, having that right elbow in and, uh, and the forearms together, and it's just kind of like a golf machine. Uh, and um, had one nine at 43, had one nine at 42, which was my best ever. I, I, thought, I thought the 43 was a fluke until I shot the 42. Then I shot a 47 and 48, but uh, I never thought it would be possible. So now, like, uh, it's really just putting in the time uh, and you get the feel and you get the comfort around the green. So uh, anyway, that's going in a great direction for those of you who asked. I guess we got a lot of golfers. Uh, but let's let's get down to brass tacks here. So three investing themes for the next three years. This is probably amongst the most important articles uh, we've written this year. Uh, one is emerging markets. And uh, we put out this chart last week from Charlie Bellello about emerging markets relative return to the S&P 500 and how it moves in these trends, uh, you know, basically eight to 12 year trends where uh, one period the emerging markets dramatically outperforms the S&P, then the S&P dramatically outperforms emerging markets. 
and then emerging markets outperformed the S&P. So we've just gone through a 12-year period where the emerging markets have had like basically zero returns, 20, 28% as of last month, um, underperformed the S&P by 329%. The last time you had that level of underperformance was uh, November 1994 to January 1999. In the next 11 years, you had 382% relative outperformance, uh, with the emerging markets returning 392%. So uh, we think we're on the cusp of that here. You can see these extreme levels, this kind of double bottom here, this double bottom here, and the conditions setting up. The trigger is going to be to watch the U.S. dollar. What's going to get the dollar to weaken? Uh, commercials are already positioned for it. We went over that last week. The key is going to be First in, first out. The Fed was the first one in with aggressive tightening. I think they're going to be the first one out to slow slow the pace, which they've already started, and to actually pivot, uh, which could be you know coming in 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 coming weeks and months, uh, depending on the CPI, PPI number, and jobs report. And on that basis, the dollar will actually start to plummet, uh, and and emerging markets will absolutely rip higher, rip, rip, rip higher. And the dollar doesn't even need to plummet; it just needs to stop going up and and grind sideways, and then emerging markets can take off. And it looks like they're ready to roll. So the biggest theme we're pushing is emerging uh, markets. That's what we've been pursuing. We initiated this position with Alibaba. Alibaba is the fourth largest weighting in the emerging markets index. So as money begins to flow into the index, Alibaba will be a key beneficiary. While China represents over 33.5% of the weighting of the emerging markets index, 338 by the end of the month, they're increasing the weight. It has the least favorable long-term demographics and the best short-term. So I want to distinguish this for everyone because this is a way to think about China. And maybe I should have... Uh, articulated this earlier on so people people could understand the context. I remember I had a friend at Cornwall, uh, uh, who I reported to, by the way, if you remember Cornwall from the Big Short, and he, and he said to me one time, he goes, you know, what you write and what you know are two like vastly different pools. He's like, you know, you, 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 can, you can say or write like a paragraph and then I can ask you about it and you can recite like six hours worth of information that's going on in your brain. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, sometimes I simplify this stuff to put it in easily, easy to digest and communicate. But there's a lot of thought that goes behind these positions and they're, they're, they're more, well more than one or two dimensional, I can assure you of that. But let's go into one of the dimensions. So for those of you worried that China will overtake the U.S. as the world's leading economic power, I know there have been a lot of big voices out there saying that for years. Uh, you can rest easy that the one-child policy created an aging population that will look a lot more like Japan following the late 1980s than a new economic superpower. Uh, recent policy decisions have cemented their fate. Uh, and even when reversed aggressively, which is happening now, it will not help help their outlook in the long term. Uh, however, in the short term, in the next three to five years, we are very bullish on China and we're more bullish on China than anywhere else in the world. Uh, the best investors in the world can hold two conflicting thoughts in their mind at the same time and still execute. And that's exactly what we're doing here. We see all the conditions set up for a monster rally in China over the next few years. And then after that, we will be laying this stuff off. When everyone's come to that consensus, uh, we'll be laying off at much, much higher prices and we'll be moving on to countries like India, 
who are a little too young now, but are going to be right in their sweet spot when China and the U.S. are weakening. So in short, the countries that will achieve the highest growth in coming years are those with the largest populations at or nearing the 25 to 35 year old range where housing and family formation is at its highest. I defy you to find one example in history when the country had a their largest segment of the population aged 25 to 35 and over that five or 10 year period, they did not have a monster equity rally and huge GDP growth. Uh, it just doesn't exist. So spending and productivity accelerates into the late 30s and early 40s. Uh, in terms of age, the U.S. has the most favorable profile outside of the emerging markets, but you can contrast by country to see where the future is headed. Japan enjoyed a demographic tailwind, a younger population from 1960 to 1980. The momentum carried their economy and stock market until 1989. Everyone pointed to their purchase of Rockefeller Center in October of 1989 and other prized assets in the U.S. to explain why they would become the world's largest economy, just like we're seeing now China buying farmland. If you remember a couple years ago, they were buying all the apartments in New York. We know what happened next. They still have not recovered three decades later. So this was that period when they were, you know, mid 30s to 3940 when the equity market peaked here, uh, basically after a five bagger in, in a few years, 500 percent, and they've never recovered since. So if you look at the thick lines around age 73 to 74 on this demographic scale, that's right here. They're now 73, 74, plus you add a year. Uh, 72, 73, we added a year because this was conducted in 2001. Uh, the biggest growth in their economy and stock market occurred when the largest portion of their population was 30 to 39. So just to subtract the 40 years and, um, uh, you know, 30, 30 minus 73. And that's when they peaked, when they were just around 40 years old. So all of this was the like 32 to 40, it peaked and that was the end of it because the market's a discounting mechanism. So these guys here were, were down here when you saw this move, okay? This, the largest segment, was down here when you saw this move, okay? And um, that's that. Now, so what countries have a large portion of their population that are 30 years old? That 30 to 35 is key. So China now, this is two years old. It's 32 to 36. That is peak for the next five years. Uh, so figure weighted is 33 and a half. That gives them a huge five, six year runway till they start hitting 39, 40. The market's a discounting mechanism. After a parabolic move, it'll start to crack. Uh, China above has an echo boom with a large portion of their population age 32 to 37, green circle above. Uh, this is in line with our outlook that like Japan in the late 80s, China will have one last spurt of parabolic growth and a stock market rally predicated on the idea that it all peaks when this segment ages into their early 40s. The last parabolic top was 2007, 15 years ago when the last large segment of the population, the blue circle above, okay, um, was just hitting 40 years old. Uh, that was the peak after a 500% gain in the Shanghai composite in the two years off the 15-year lows. So this is what happened, the last parabolic peak, five, you know, from 1,000 to 6,000, 500% gain. And in the Shanghai, it was a 300% gain over the same period. 
um, you know, just as they were peaking out at 39.40. So we've got five years here with this, this bump right here, which is pretty exciting. In other words, the next three to five years will be the best years in China for many decades to come. They're going to be the next Japan, uh, but we want to ride that Japan from when? From 1985 to 1989, when they had this parabolic move of 400% in a couple of years, and we think we could see similar situation in China. Cut it in half, you're still going to make fortunes. So um, now, the key is one of the keys that we spend a lot of time on is sentiment. Um, so we expect a long-term peak around five years from now. In the meantime, we get. We get up and dance while the music is playing like Japan from 1984 to 1989. We could be seeing new highs for China before anyone expects it. This interview from yesterday, and how prescient, by the way, uh, August 24th shows just how hated China is right now. This is a sentiment check. This is not a criticism of anyone. You know, that th these people have made many good calls, many bad calls. Uh, it's just to get, uh, this is just a... Uh, barometer of the overall sentiment on China when the pessimism peaks, and that's usually the basis for rallies. And sure enough, the next day, what did we get? All the good news all at once because uh, everyone blinked and uh, and we're off to the races. So I think this will go down as an historic interview and turning point for China equities when people look back just a year from now. It will rival the China is uninvestable note that JP Morgan, uh, that uh, young analyst dropped uh, in, in March uh, on the exact day that China equities bottomed in March 2022. Uh, this, is, this is part two. I think yesterday was another intermediate term bottom, and this is the sentiment that dictates that viewpoint. So don't take this wrong because I'm obviously a friend of your colleague. But your exposure to China is, frankly, I, I, I just can't get my arms around it. You're talking about we would use the deletion pullback to add further to direct China. Uh, China is maybe, I think, one of the worst places in the world to invest. The communists have played their hand. They've, told, they've showed their hand. You're investing with Mao. You're not even investing with Joe and Lai at this point. And I just don't get it. Why do I have to be in China? It's a fair, it's, it's, it's a fair point, Jim. Uh, look. Um, people have been investing, you know, China has the sort of same system, same party, same president for the sort of a number of years now, you know, like a year ago, people were fine with it. Uh, now many people are not fine with it. So, so we're taking a little bit of a view here that the discount is quite significant there. If you look at the sort of uh, Chinese equities, how much they pulled in a year, year and a half, you know, in some cases, some sectors like technology, 70 plus percent, you know, we think there's a lot of it is built, that risk premium is built. The second reason is, uh, China had a sort of terrible performance in the in the past year from the perspective of uh, you know the COVID reopening economy housing. Um, uh, they also had a sort of tightening of policies, regulatory, financial, monetary, and now that's sort of shifting. You know, so you have their monetary easing, you have a fiscal easing, you have this very very deep discount basically now uh, relative to the U.S. market. So we think it's actually an opportunity to capture that. So 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 it's 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 a, it's a tactical view. Uh, again, uh, not too much has changed in the China, but the pricing has changed quite a lot in the last year. Mm. Your colleague... Uh... So there you go. That's Marco Kalanovic. Uh, Kalanovic versus Kramer on China. I'll take the Kalanovic side on that. Uh, and I love what he said. So, you, you know, you had the commentary, worst place to invest in the world. Uh, and then the response, like, uh, by the way, the... Uh, government was the same a year ago. Everyone was fine with it when the stocks were up. 
Uh, and then they, you know, basically had to fight this once in a hundred year black swan. They overshot on the uh, crackdowns and now they're going to overshoot on the stimulus. And that's that's really what it comes down to. But it's nice to hear it ob- objectively from a third party. And I uh, hope you found that helpful uh, in terms of a sentiment barometer. Now, it's a bit early in India, but the future can belong to them starting in the 2030s. Their bit largest population is still in their early 20s, so still early days. But when we're laying out of China... Uh, and uh, U.S. later in the decade, we will be aggressively buying India. And I know some of you will be with us then after having made a fortune on China. Uh, you'll be adding to your accounts, which will be exciting. But uh, Vietnam is well positioned right now, uh, right right today. And we're, we're going to actually start looking at some, some opportunities in Vietnam that have a large enough margin of safety. Indonesia is a favorable setup. Malaysia is well positioned. Uh, and last but not least, United States is perfectly positioned for the next decade. Uh, we're number one. So our job for investors will be to continue to find the best companies in each country that are expected to grow the fastest at the right time. We will build up positions when everyone is questioning the valid- validity with their despondency and sell off our positions when consensus has embraced our outlook with exuberance at much higher prices. This is what we have always done and will always do it's in our DNA. And that's all I can do is explain it. I don't understand why everyone doesn't think this way. And I've come to the conclusion as I've gotten older, it's either in your DNA or it's not. And uh, the investors that I've fortunately attracted and and the uh, people to work with me that I've attracted uh, apparently have it in their DNA too, which is is, uh, one of the reasons that we do these video casts and podcasts is to attract the right people. So our core big bet outside of the U.S. is China because the timing dictates it. We believe we own the highest quality asset in the country in Alibaba. And as Marco said in the interview above, nothing has changed in the past year other than working through a once in a hundred year event. Tight regulatory policy has now began transitioning into monetary and fiscal stimulus in recent months. The government can't screw it up no matter how hard they have tried, even working overtime for the last 12 months. They haven't been able to screw it up. Uh, There are too many 33 to 35-year-olds starting housing and family formation, and the next five years will boom irrespective of who is in power. Demographics and spending dictate economic destiny. By the time we are out of China, we will be buying India hand over fist. In the meantime, we're starting to look closely for high-quality companies in Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia. USA, however, continues to be number one and will be for the foreseeable future. Second is biotech. The biotech sector is now up about 50% off its May lows. We believe the trend is just beginning and will persist to move higher in fits and starts over the next two plus years, similar to the 2016 to 2018, the last tightening cycle. We have covered this theme many times in the past few months, so we will not repeat it, but you can review it in previous notes and podcast video casts here. And housing. We've done nothing material on this front at present because despondency has not yet set in despite higher rates and softening demand. People are still hopeful because of the supply-demand imbalance. If that sentiment changes during the slower winter selling season and the short-term, quote, voting machine puts quality businesses like home builders on sale, we will pounce. Until then, we watch and wait, fully knowing that the opportunity may not present itself with a large enough margin of safety for our liking. There is a 3.8 million undersupply of starter homes, and if this and that is the area we would like to own, if the opportunity becomes attractive enough. On Friday, I joined Shauna Smith and Dave Briggs on Yahoo Finance in studio. Thanks to Taylor Clothier, Shauna. 
Dave and Jeff Cohen for having me on. My full and comprehensive current stock market outlook is all here. And I would uh, couple that with the Fox Business interview from this afternoon for the most current view. Now on to the general market. The AAII sentiment dropped. People got more bearish this week. That's good for us bulls. Uh, overall is neutral on the fear and greed. And this um, National Association of Active Investment Managers, what did I say? They missed the rally and they have to shake them out. They've done that. They're now down to 55% equity exposure, nowhere close. Any good news, they're going to have to chase up. Uh, biotech earnings, uh, Carter did the um, uh, equal weight XBI. Uh, estimates are up 6.73%. Uh, for 2022 and 5.65% earnings estimates for the top 30 weights in the last 60 days. So earnings estimates are moving up. It looked like the end of the world three, four, five months ago. Now, um, now you know, uh, opinion follows trend. The prices are going up. People are getting excited and earnings are going up. The analysts are upgrading uh, as opposed to the IBB, which is the large cap weighted. Uh, their estimates for next year only rose 1.4%. That's why we've been talking XBI and equivalents since. Uh, economic data, there's not a whole lot here that uh, uh, is big. Uh, the continuing claims and the initial claims were pretty good. We had a draw, 3.2 million barrels, uh, which was pretty good. And um, uh, we've got a few... Questions of the week, one from Greg Stewart. What are your thoughts on SPLK lately, Splunk lately? Is it your opinion might be a good place to place some new money? Uh, I think you'll be okay with this one over the long term. I do think there are better places to put your money right now, and we've covered quite a few uh, on this. You know, you got that little bounce from 105 to 150 when we were originally talking about it in the fall. Uh, then it rolled over in the environment that we're in where you have to be generating cash to be attractive. But uh, I think long term, it's, it's generally OK. We don't have any exposure at this point uh, uh, that's worth talking, that's worth writing home about. But um, it's probably OK. The environment has changed. I'd be less, less aggressive on these non-earning companies and be looking more at the stuff that we covered in this call. Uh, another uh, person JT investor. I hope you're enjoying the final days of summer. Appreciate you putting the effort to provide valuable perspectives to your followers. We appreciate all you do. Thank you for that. I'd appreciate your read on Rent R E N T. This is a busted IPO of a company that seems to have a compelling reopening story. And Q2 may be a strong quarter given the pent up demand we saw for events experiences as soon as the warm weather broke open. Explosion of revenge travel and consumer spending on experiences versus goods. The business was founded by a well-educated woman entrepreneur, smart PE funding that's validated the business model. Bain Capital Ventures and Aries are among the top shareholders. Company seems to be on the cusp of turning break-even cash flow perspective based on quarter's MD&A. On the earnings call, operating leverage may start to provide a benefit as customers, subscribers drive the top-line growth. The stock is trading around $5.52. A company gets some good press through major financial media given the strong female representation. It may also represent an interesting recession play as customers can still afford rent. High-end clothing versus buying. I know it's not your knitting to play recent IPOs. Good, so you already know my answer. It's not my knitting to play recent IPOs. That's all you need to know. Uh, but this may fall into a special situation category since the company's IPO flop has already occurred and a rebound could be kicked off when the company reports in September. Thanks for your consideration and enjoy your weekend. Uh, you might be right. I mean, I like the thinking behind it. Uh, it's not for me. And the reason it's not for me is because I pulled up the data 
I just I don't want to gamble on whether it's going to turn cash flow positive or not. Um, it's unproven. I don't have enough data to feel comfortable about management managing through cycles, no matter how smart they are or how smart their backed up funding uh, is because this looks like crap to me. I mean, I understand that it's a black swan event, but for revenues to go drop, you know, basically 50% due to COVID and then they're recovering, but, um, you know, they're still losing money. Maybe they turn cash flow positive. Maybe they'll be resurgent. But I think you're better, better, honestly, buy it at 10 bucks. If it does do the turnaround and you miss a, uh, a one bagger and you pick up a three or four bagger, you know, let's just see how it does because, uh, there are a lot of these businesses. I don't know what moat they have renting out clothes. Like a, a lot of people do that and um, there's got to be more to it. But anyway, um, I think it's good thinking. I would keep an eye on it, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be trying to pick the bottom here. There's just not enough track record to uh, have any confidence. How can management, uh, ma- you know, how has management performed through different cycles, through different stresses? And we, you know, we only have one instance and, and revenues dropped in half. So not in love with that uh, for now. Paul says, hey, Tom, love the videos, love the interviews you do. I found you on Twitter, watch the video cast weekly now. Very helpful to have me as I share, very, very helpful to me as I share your style investing, but I'm still learning, keep, keep it up and thank you. Also look forward to hearing how the golf game evolves. Okay, good. Uh, if you get to Michigan, Forest Dunes and Arcadia Bluffs are some amazing golf courses. So yeah, I'll definitely put that on the list. Um, so listen, I want to thank everyone for tuning in in the uh, final week of kind of summer vacation season and uh, uh, sharing 45 minutes with me. Uh, I'm going to get another round in tomorrow afternoon for sure. And uh, we'll do some jet skiing in the morning. Uh, it won't be as much fun as Montana, but it'll be a good time. And, uh, and uh, we'll do some more uh, nice restaurants and have a great time. And then back back to it, uh, back to Connecticut and New York on Saturday uh, and, um, and playing my home track. So uh, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. In the meantime, thanks for listening in. Make it a great one. Bye for now.